This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Troy Halsell, and I'm your host on New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Gretchen Minton. She is a professor of English at Montana State University, and we are discussing her new book, Shakespeare in Montana, Big Sky Country's Love Affair with the World's Most Famous Writer, published by the University of New Mexico Press. Tracing more than two centuries of history, Shakespeare in Montana uncovers a vast array of different voices that capture the state's love affair with the world's most famous writer. From mountain men, pioneers, and itinerant acting companies in mining camps, to women's clubs at the turn of the century, and the contemporary popularity of Shakespeare in the parks throughout Montana, the book chronicles the stories of residents across this incredible western state who have been attracted to the words and works of Shakespeare. Minton explores this unique relationship found in the treasure state and provides considerable insight into the myriad places and times in which Shakespeare's words have been heard and discussed. By revealing what Shakespeare has meant to the people of Montana, Minton offers us a better understanding of the state's citizens and history while providing a key perspective on Shakespeare's enduring global influence. Gretchen, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right. So let's let's just jump uh, right into this thing. So so the first question, and this is the one I always lead off with here, is how did you come to write this book? Well, uh, I am a Shakespeare scholar, so I'm a professor in an English department, and I publish a lot of things on Shakespeare. And when I got this job at Montana State University in 2006, I thought, well, I love I love the mountains. I'm glad I'm going to get to live in the Intermountain West, but I assume that my research on Shakespeare is always going to take me elsewhere, like back to the UK, to the British Library, to the Royal Shakespeare Company, like where Shakespeare is centered. Uh, However, it didn't take long of being out here to start to suspect that Montana had a unique relationship with Shakespeare. I noticed Montana Shakespeare in the Parks, a beloved cultural institution of of this state right away, and thought, uh, what a special organization that is. And then uh, my husband, Kevin's, uh, who is a, a great, has a great knowledge of the American West, said, well, you know that the mountain men love Shakespeare and they came out here reading Shakespeare. And I said, really? And then this got me thinking and uh, wanting to research a little bit about what is the relationship between Shakespeare and Montana and what has the reception been? And the more I got into the subject, the more fascinating it was. And so my coming to to know and love this state in the 15 years I've lived here has really been parallel to researching and publishing this book. Cool, thank you. Yeah, um, no, that's that that's that's fascinating because I remember when I was I was just scouring the websites looking for books that might fit this, and I came across your book. And my reaction was, well, of course I'm going to do that one. And but because it was something that I never thought or considered, you know, when I thought of quote unquote the West, just like we'll talk about quote unquote Shakespeare here in a second. And and so, so I'm really glad you that you tackled it because um, as as the, our listeners will will come to come to hear as we get into it, you know, just the. I don't know, pervasive is the right word, but I mean, just how ever present Shakespeare was and is uh, just 
going back as far as you can probably document, at least in the written word, um, was something that 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 actually fascinated fascinated me a good bit, and, and so I was really excited to read it. Um, so, so kind of the first question, always, uh, or that first question, the second one here. Um, so, what did the research process look like for this book? And I asked that question because yourself, as as a Shakespeare scholar and someone who does literary criticism wrote a history of Shakespeare in Montana. So I'm kind of curious how you as a, a literary scholar approached uh, that kind of from a, a method standpoint or just, you know, where, where you got your stories essentially. Mm-hmm. So uh, it took about a decade really of work uh, to, to bring this book together because I was also working on a lot of other things at the same time. And uh, the research though was endlessly fascinating. So and often, again, my, my husband was with me and we would drag our son and say, OK, we're taking another uh, trip to the archives. And so some of it was physical trips to archives in the state, like Montana Historical Society and Helen, the Butte Silverbow Archives. Also some smaller places in Fort Benton and Lewis, Lewistown and other places. So sometimes it's scouring through, you know, linear files that about various figures or opera houses in a community a lot of material about women's reading groups that uh, I spent time looking at in Helena and Butte in particular. Some of it uh, had to do with interviewing people, uh, people with Montana Shakespeare in the Parks. And I work with that company and know a lot of the artists, but also we trailed the company and, and saw the, the productions in different places and interviewed long-term audience members. Uh, and some of it came from newspapers.com which is a tremendous archive where you can search. And uh, these wonderful people have scanned decades of newspapers throughout the state. And so I can't imagine having been able to dig up some of the stories I did if I was looking through microfilm and trying to hope that I saw the name Shakespeare, right? So I could just type it in or type various actors' names in and they would come up on newspapers.com. So that was a treasure trove of information, uh, as, as were the historical archives, but also that oral history of just talking to people, especially long-term Montana residents and saying, you know, did you go to a one-room schoolhouse? You know, did you learn Shakespeare? And people would say, oh, my grandmother taught Shakespeare at this, this place. Would you like to see these books? Or we'd be in Dillon and the librarian there would say, oh, here, here's a repository of books that belong to the women's club here. And so, so much of that uh, word of mouth and oral history, as well as the written record in newspapers and women's clubs, just gave a really wide and, and deep knowledge of what Shakespeare has meant in this state. You know, as a historian, I can definitely appreciate going to the archives and looking for that needle among needles. You know what I mean? Just just because it's Shakespeare, it's just when you kind of zoom in on it, right, it's Shakespeare, then you go up a level, then maybe it's a particular theater house, and then you up a bit more, it's theater, you know, live performances, and being able to pull Shakespeare um, and what uh, his works meant to the residents of Montana. I mean, I was actually quite fascinated as I was digging through your footnotes and stuff and looking at, you know, archi the, all the archival sources that you're using. I'm like, man, that is, talk about stitching together something to try to tell a story from fragments here and there. To me, as a story, I, thought I was actually quite impressed by it. So good job. <laughs> well, thank you. Actually, what you said just makes me want to just make another comment about sometimes what you find in the archives is not what you think you're going to find. And you're convinced, okay, in this folder, I'm going to find everything. And then you look through and say, no, nothing interesting here. 
But then you stumble upon things you weren't expecting to find. Uh, there was one especially exciting moment when we were in Virginia City in this this little library, and we said, "Oh, you know, we're we're looking for." the history of, of people uh, and books about Shakespeare in Virginia City and the librarian said, I don't know that there's anything in particular here that will be of interest to you. And she let us walk back through the vault and their, their, their little collection. And all of a sudden I looked down and there's this old binding on a book and we pulled it out and looked and it was 1802 edition of the collected works of Shakespeare. And uh, she didn't know it was there. It wasn't cataloged in the library. And here we had in our hands a book that had probably been in Virginia City since the 1860s and that someone had brought it there. And it was just this beautiful, tangible evidence about people reading Shakespeare in that region that we never expected to find. And of course, thinking about it, you know, going back that far, just someone had to physically lug that book from St. Louis to Virginia City or wherever it might have, you know, wherever their their starting point was. And that means that something probably that could have saved their life didn't go in their 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 pack, you know what I mean? And so that someone brought for whatever reason Shakespeare with them definitely points to that 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 uh that interest that importance for uh the works of Shakespeare uh in this case early on, but of course throughout the the life of the state. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. In one way or another, people were always carrying Shakespeare out here. Um, okay, so so let's kind of get into my, my questions about uh, the content of the book. And so I I kind of shoehorned in one question on the front end um, that I was just curious about. Um, so so for anyone who's um, who does pick up uh, Gretchen's book, you'll find that there's I think it's I believe it's five key chapters with your intro and your conclusion, your standard stuff. But what she's done between every chapter, she has these interludes. Um, and they are kind of shorter um, passages about uh, just the stories of Shakespeare and its relationship to Montana and Montanans. So I'm curious, why are those interludes there? Because as I read them, they definitely stand out as, here's this other episode of Shakespeare in Montana, but at the same time, they were... They, they weren't quite threaded through the, the, the narrative of the core five chapters of your book. And I was wondering if you could just kind of explain uh, what they are, why they're there, their role, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so the idea of an interlude is a, is a pretty historically grounded one in terms of drama, right? So often there were uh, main acts that performers would, would do, and in between there would be some sort of an interlude, something that just kind of gave the audience a break, or maybe another way of putting it is a different way of looking at the same material. And as I had all the research in the various folders in front of me, the computer files as well as the physical files, there was a certain organization which is roughly chronological, but more importantly, kind of groups things together, like education in one chapter, women's reading groups in another, and itinerant performers in another. But then there would be other material that uh, I didn't have enough of it for an entire chapter. Like I knew I wanted to talk about cowboys, for instance, because everyone would want to know, oh, what's cowboy engagement with Shakespeare? But there were great anecdotes about cowboys, and they sort of related to some of the other chapters, but there was more to it than that. And I thought, let's give the audience of the book just a chance to think just in terms of cowboys, whether that was, you know, people in in the 1890s near Livingston or Charlie Russell or even contemporary cowboy poets. 
things that would allow us a broader chronological sweep of certain subjects. And uh, they're shorter and a little bit different. And I just thought that it would be uh, a nice break and a, a nice way of just exposing a slightly different viewpoint uh, that gives a fuller picture of Shakespearean stories. No, thank you for that. I felt that was going to be the answer, but I had to ask just to be certain. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so, so thanks for explaining that for us. Um, okay, so, let, so let's jump in. So in your introduction, the first paragraph, you give this vignette where you're, um, I believe you're in, I forget where you were, but you're, you're talking, you're checking into a hotel and the desk. In are, yeah, and he's yeah. talking about Shakespeare. And, and you made this distinction, right? There is Shakespeare without quotation marks and then Shakespeare with quotation marks. And can you kind of differentiate between what you mean the difference between Shakespeare and then this Shakespeare that you put in, in quotation marks for us? Yeah. So the Shakespeare without quotation marks is the man himself. That, that is the, uh, the playwright uh, who uh, was born in Stratford upon Avon and lived from 1564 to 1616. And I can get into this later too, but I get asked all the time, did Shakespeare really write those plays? And, you know, my answer is yes, absolutely. And, I'll be prepared to argue with anyone who, who says otherwise. But there was a an actual human being who wrote these plays and these poems, and so that is Shakespeare. However, over the last four centuries, Shakespeare, in quotation marks, I use to refer to not just the man, but his works and the cultural legacy that his works have come to represent. I mean, he has become so incredibly influential, not just in the English-speaking world, but across the globe. And so Shakespeare in quotation marks is all of the movies and the spinoffs and the uh, the editions and the classes and the cultural capital of Shakespeare. And so he, he in quotation marks, means far more than any individual human could have anticipated four centuries ago. Sorry about that. Uh, everybody, the cat got on the keyboard there. Um, no, thanks for that. Yeah, no, it, it's interesting um, having to really kind of tell that difference, right? Because it's very, it comes clear, and it, to me, it's very, to me, it's clear in your book where I know it's talking about you know William Shakespeare the person, right? That they're definitely talking about this 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 canon that he created uh, plays. Um, you know, you focus on the, the the plays aspect too, but I imagine they're also reading all of his other works as well and stuff like that. So, um, so so with that, let's let's jump into um, kind of what Shakespeare meant. So, what did Shakespeare mean um, to the men on the the Montana frontier? Well, as I mentioned before. Uh, it was really those anecdotes about the mountain men in the mid-19th century that ignited my imagination. And in particular, the anecdotes about Jim Bridger, uh, of which there are dozens, uh, and they all involve this unlikely meeting between an illiterate uh, mountain man, such as, as Jim Bridger, and the works of Shakespeare. But he apparently loved to have people read Shakespeare to him. He had a lot of opinions about Shakespeare's stories, sometimes was outraged at the way it was going. One of those favorite anecdotes that I always tell is when he was he was incensed that Shakespeare wrote that Richard III killed his, uh, his nephews, the princes, in the Tower of London. And so Bridger threw the book into the fire, outraged. But then he got another one because he wanted to keep reading Shakespeare. 
Uh, I mean, some of these stories, we can't possibly know how embellished they are, how many are tall tales. One of the points I make in the book is, even if they are tall tales, the fact that people were interested in telling those stories is in and of itself a story. Like, why is it that people kept wanting to talk about Shakespeare on the Frontier? But I think that what we do know for sure is that the two books that consistently show up with the Mountain Men and the Pioneers is the King James Bible and the Complete Works of Shakespeare. And because the King James Bible was uh, was published in 1611, that is a book that is contemporary to Shakespeare. So I think uh, the Mountain Men liked the way the words of Shakespeare sounded. They sounded kind of like the Bible as an early 17th century language. Uh, and I think that Shakespeare for these Mountain Men was a source of wisdom, a source of poetry, but also just some good storytelling that could help them pass some really boring times on the frontier. I think that, you know, sometimes we have this imagination that it was all excitement and fighting off grizzly bears and protecting yourselves from invasions and things like that. But what's what's evident from reading the historical record is how much time there was just waiting around, like Osborne Russell talking about the gathering with his fellow trappers in these in these huts through the long winter nights and they're cold and they're bored and they have to have something to do. So they start reading Shakespeare to one another and talking about the stories. And the same thing happened on army forts on the frontiers as well, where people start passing the time by reading and then eventually acting. And then they identify with various characters and situations. And because Shakespeare's works are so expansive, whether you want to think about war or, uh, or whether you want to think about love or troubled relationships between parents and children or any number of things, it's all in Shakespeare, right? So he tells a good story. He tells it with beautiful language that I think that people are drawn to and in complex ways that give you a lot of opportunity to have discussions and debates and get on your feet and do some acting. And I think for all of those reasons, the the men on the frontier were attracted to to these stories. I really like how you pointed to like like <laughs> there's a lot of downtime. They, there's something to do, and it it, it it just made me think that anytime I see a western um, movie or or even Charlie Russell's artwork here in Great Falls, right? You know, you, you always see guys playing cards, right? And I'm always you know at first I was like, well, why are they always playing cards? I was like, well, what else are they going to do? You know what I mean? <laughs> They've got so much downtime. So, so it makes sense to me, at least, that um, that you know, if it's not cards, it's it's, it's Shakespeare, it's something else. Um, and so, being able to 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 kind of come together and pass time, I'm sure there's a bonding element if they're going through and passing around one of the, one of the plays that everybody's reading lines from. And I can just kind of picture uh, how that uh, really draws people in, um, both to the works, but also just the people that they that, that they might be with. And, and of course, that's just pure speculation of my end. But that's kind of how when I go to go camping, that's what I do. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. It makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. to me, too. Um, okay, so let's move on just a bit. So so who played a, a role in creating what you call the golden age of Shakespeare in Montana? When I, when I saw that question, I had a little preview of that question. I was thinking, out of all the people that I could choose, who am I going to say? Uh, but to pick one representative example, I, I think I'm going to just throw out the name Daniel Bandman. 
because Daniel Bandman is a very fascinating uh, character. He was an actor who was German born, but he toured all over the world. I mean, literally, I mean, he went all throughout Europe and North America and went to Asia, but he fell in love with Montana. And he decided that he was going to give up the life of an actor and become a rancher in Montana. And against the odds, he actually did that. Yeah, he bought a ranch uh, outside of, of Missoula and he ended up, you know, having cattle and uh, ra raising uh, Macintosh apples and, and other curious things. But what's so fun about the stories of him is that here you have an incredibly talented European actor who thinks about how he played Shylock all these years and he's going to give up Shylock and be a ranchman. And that double identity between Montana ranchman and uh and a Shakespearean actor follows him throughout his life, the newspapers can't get enough of him. They keep talking about how quirky he was and what did he do now? He was challenging people to see who could get up to the top of mountains more quickly. And he was challenging other actors to sword fights in the street and all this sort of thing. So he was a larger than life character who kept acting, whether he was on the stage or on the metaphorical stage of Montana. And so because he played in all these playhouses and spanned this uh, this time period of the late 19th and early 20th century and put down roots in Montana, I see him really as emblematic of this change where Shakespeare is no longer just about itinerants who travel through Montana and just say, let me grace you with my beautiful performance of Hamlet and then move on. But he actually did settle here and uh, was informed all of his subsequent appearances by his life in Montana. So when I think about uh, who might represent the golden age, as I call it, I think that he's a pretty good example. No, no, his stories were um, the, the, the the picture you painted of him was something where it, it was <laughs> it was both hard for me to. To believe, even though I, you know, I reread many paragraphs from that that particular section, but but it kind of you kind of made a point, right? Or you said something made me think that, like you know, for him the curtain was always up, you know, that he was mm -hmm. always um, performing uh, either Shakespeare or whatever this this Daniel Bandman pers persona was uh, from that, and so so I know that he settled, but. <laughs> But either I don't know if this is a before he settled or after he settled. But let's let's go with it like after he actually planted some roots here. I mean, did he continue to to do uh, go on a, a circuit and and perform for folks throughout Montana during this time period, or was that kind of more on the front end of his uh, time here, and then kind of on the back half, he you know he properly became a rancher and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, he he um as he got older, he acted less and less, but he did he would occasionally go back to New York to act, but he did also go to Butte periodically and some other places. And then he and his wife ended up acting periodically in Missoula and they helped to find the to found rather the Montana Maskers, uh which is uh a, a long-term theater troupe uh at the University of Montana. And uh, and his wife, and this is another funny story about him, is it was a young actress who came out to kind of take lessons from Daniel Bandman, as it were. And then there was a big scandal when she ended up pregnant. Uh, but she she became an impressive uh, actor in her own right and was in some films as well. 
Uh, and so I think the way you put it is a really good way is that the curtain was always up and he was always acting in one way or another. Like one of the anecdotes that happens quite late in his life is that there was another theater troupe who came through and they acted and there was this surly looking guy in the front row and they couldn't figure out who it was. And then afterwards, they realized that Daniel Bandman himself had been watching them play. And then they were honored and excited. But it's like he was still this persona of now I'm going to be the guy in the front row and everybody's going to notice me more than they're going to notice these people on stage who are who are pouring their, their heart and soul out to this this drama. Like he was upstaging the performers from the first row. I found that very, <laughs> very funny. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so 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 next question here. So um, so talk about big names. Uh, lost my train of thought here. Where's it at? Oh yeah. Um, so so moving away from men as, as some characters into, into women here. Um, what was the relationship between women and Sh- and Shakespeare in that that late nineteenth, early twentieth century? Well, the clearest relationship is from the women's reading groups that I have already mentioned. And this movement in the late 19th and early 20th century of women's reading groups happens all over the U.S. Uh, But it becomes especially important to the development of women's communities, uh, you know, in the 1890s and and into the 19 teens. And so women in places like, like Butte and Dillon and and Helena and Great Falls and all over the place would get together in drawing rooms. And every week or two, they would have a group that had um, a, a real curriculum. Uh, so it was a rigorous curriculum. It would go through all of the plays of Shakespeare and Greco-Roman history and mythology. And they were really learned. And so the women would read. They would present uh, papers to one another. They would give elocution lessons. Uh, apparently certain fines if they didn't show up and do their homework. Uh, and then many of them actually performed as well. And so the the cultural import of these organizations, I think, is quite clear in these communities as these women, you know, moved into places that uh, during the time of white settlement were largely male communities. And these women said, OK, we're going to bring culture and we're not going to let anybody think that we are that we're unlearned, uncouth people just because we happen to live out here in the West. And so the rigor and the articulateness of these groups uh, really does shine through in the programs, in the entertainments these women gave, in these full uh, full-fledged performances. And also they would in they would invite lecturers from the East Coast and from other places all over the US to come. And, and give a lecture to them, and then they would sponsor these. And it was really uh, such a remarkable thing to go through the minutes books and the programs of these groups and to realize just how invested these women were in the study of Shakespeare and what he meant, especially the wisdom that he could give them when it came to Shakespeare's outspoken female characters, like they loved talking about these great women, such as Rosalind from As You Like It, Portia from Merchant of Venice, Beatrice from Much Ado About Nothing. Like these are some powerful, articulate, bossy women. And the women of the early 20th century reading groups love talking about these women. And these are the same 
women who were invested in the suffrage movement. And um, often these things ran in parallel and you could see women discussing and getting excited about my lady tongue, which is this great way of referring to Beatrice uh, and Jeanette Rankin. And it's like, we have a voice and we deserve the right to vote. And I love this idea that they were co-opting Shakespeare for very immediate political needs for them at the beginning of the 20th century. I can't remember if you, if you said it explicitly in the book or not, but it also feels like, you know, them moving into, and Butte might be a great example, right? Where it's, I'm making a number up, but if they're at the time there's 50,000 people, there might be 49,000 men, you know, in, in the town. And so um, it, fe- it felt like for me uh, that, that these clubs that they developed around Shakespeare was also a way to kind of create just a kind of a female community in these very, very male dominated spaces. And then from there, as you point out, it it turns into not only just kind of this education uh, program, not only this way to show, Hey, we may live in Butte, but we're still cultured. Right. But it keeps pushing forward into suffrage and, 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 um, and other topics like that. Um, Okay. So lost my train of thought here. Where is it at? Oh yeah, so 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 up to this point, so up to the 20, early twentieth century here, Shakespeare clearly has meant something uh, for residents of Montana, whether on the frontier, mining camps. Now we have female, cl- you know, uh, women's clubs around Shakespeare. Um, but how did Montanans keep his works alive for future generations? Um, so there's clearly a foundation laid, right? But like, what was kind of what was kind of the 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 method to kind of keep people interested in it uh, going forward? The best way to keep Shakespeare uh, alive for future generations, I figure, is always the schoolhouse. So, uh, you know, most of us first encountered Shakespeare sometime to our dismay uh, in, in, in school, right? My students say this all the time. Yes, I had to read Romeo and Juliet in ninth grade, and I'm still recovering from it. I, uh, you know, I, of course, try, try, to, uh, try to make them much more excited and, and positive about Shakespeare. But I think that what we see in this whole history of uh, Shakespeare in Montana schoolhouses is that from a very early time, teachers see how exciting Shakespeare can be for the students, especially if you get students on their feet acting. And, you know, it's pretty common all over the U.S. uh, in in the 19th and 20th century to use the McGuffey readers to teach to teach elocution to teach poetry, to take sh- to teach, you know, Shakespeare uh, wisdom or morality or whatever people perceived it to be. But I think that in Montana, there's a lot of evidence that teachers thought it was important to get students performing Shakespeare and doing it early on. I was astounded at the number of eighth graders who were performing Merchant of Venice, like the whole play, like in, you know, 1907, 1908, and then they were doing a spoof of the Merchant of Venice called the Merchant of Venice Up to Date, which uh, is is a spoof based on the idea that the play takes place um, in a high school football team and controversy that arises around that. And uh, that is a tradition that continued, I think, through a lot of the one-room schoolhouses and then into even some contemporary uh, children's Shakespeare Society here in Bozeman or the Belt Valley Shakespeare Players up there near Great Falls, where teachers realize that if you give students some costumes and some creativity and you let them embody another character, 
that they can make their own sense out of Shakespeare and what these stories mean to them. Like they can switch the setting into something that makes sense to them. Like if it's Shakespeare in chaps, as it were, or if it's Shakespeare in a different time period or in their imaginations, letting students have that free reign with Shakespeare while also grounding it in the language is a story that I've seen across um, certainly the last century or so of Montana education. And this is something that I think that Ivan Doig's novels capture really well is showing, you know, schoolhouses or um, or Butte uh, or uh, bar rooms uh, where Shakespeare is important in the stories of Doig as well. Because he also being being a Montanan understood the importance of Shakespeare to kids and their imaginations as they grow up and encounter uh, this as part of their schooling. And it had me thinking, talking about Ivan Doig, I, uh, I read uh, Bartender's Tale a few months back, and that was the, that was the only, it's the only Ivan Doig book I've read. It was fascinating. I loved it. You know, it's one of those that's great for anybody of any age. But even that one, I think it was, wasn't the, um, uh, the bartender, I forget his name, son, him and his friend had to go teach the, the newspaper man's wife or what worked with her through a script. I think it was Shakespeare. I can't really remember off the top of my head, but yeah, they were, they were actually working on, um, on, uh, Oscar. I think it was Oscar Wilde. That's right. That's right. That's right. You're, you're exactly right though, Mm -hmm. that the kids in that, in that book do fall in love with Shakespeare and they go to a performance of as you like it that comes through town and then they fall in love and they decide they're going to become actors. And, uh, and those are the types of stories that seem utterly believable because this is the kind of thing that happens in every little town in Montana is that this access to an interest in Shakespeare. You know, the, the, and I'm just kind of reflecting back on my own experience, experience with Shakespeare in, in mind was probably like you let off is, is it was in high school and I was like, ah, Romeo and Juliet, this is so dumb, you know, and that was kind of a reaction. And, and while I never actually got up and kind of read the lines and even just kind of walked through it, even for me, I, I've seen one Shakespeare play. This was in Memphis, I don't know, five, six years ago. And it was one of the histories. I forget which one it was. I was in that theater for probably the better part of three hours. And I was on the edge of my seat the entire time, completely enthralled by what I was watching, both the story, the performance, I was just amazed that you have a, a company of 10 actors playing 30 characters or whatever it might be, you know, just, you know, here, here's a guy who's a farmer, and then he puts on the hat, now he's a soldier, and then it's a whole other set of lines, and so, like, it, I just got sucked into it, it was, like, like yeah, I mean, it, it's just a way to really draw people in, um, that I find absolutely fascinating. So, so kind of, so talking about you know, drawing people in and um, kind of more contemporary. So, so two things here, right, is can you uh, just give our listeners just um, an overview um, about Montana Shakespeare and the Parks as a program, but specifically um, what you led the book off about is the, the, the experience at Poker Gym Butte in that particular performance. I was absolutely, absolutely fascinated by that story, but it really hammers home what that program does for Shakespeare and really just kind of anything cultural related in Montana up to present day. Mm-hmm. So Montana Shakespeare in the Parks is about to celebrate its 50th year anniversary uh, next year in 2022. So no, if you think about it, um, so it starts in the early 70s, and it is an outgrowth of what I was just talking about, and that is that sense that educational systems do carry on 
a love of Shakespeare because uh, Shakespeare in the Parks is, is housed at Montana State University. Uh, however, its mission is to go out uh, and reach communities all over Montana and now a surrounding uh, five-state area with a special emphasis upon rural and underserved communities. And this is what makes the company so wonderful, is that you have professional actors who will go out and show up in tiny towns all over this region and give residents the, the opportunity to see for free a Shakespeare play, where in many cases, this is the only cultural event of the town, and it's certainly people's only chance to see theater. And because it's been going on now for so many decades, you have um, generations of people now who are continuing to sponsor the shows and you know do potlucks for the actors afterwards. And there's a real sense of community around the performance of Shakespeare and bringing people together to enjoy these stories together. One of the things that was so traumatic to these communities in 2020 is for the first time in its history, Shakespeare in the Parks could not come because of COVID. And it wasn't just losing the opportunity to see Shakespeare or to have some, some cultural outlets. It was losing the opportunity to come together and experience those stories and the unfolding of the drama together. And what you mentioned, the, the location at Poker Jim Butte, so that's outside of the tiny town of Bernie, which is in Southeast Montana, uh, very close to the Northern Cheyenne Indian Reservation, and uh, for uh, you know for the, for all of the, the years, but one of its inception, Montana Shakespeare in the Parks has gone there to a place with you know almost no population. Right, the town of Bernie has about sixteen people in it, yet they draw about a hundred people per performance every year. Uh, who drive up to a state park at the top of a butte because they want to hear Shakespeare and experience this event together. And it is a beautiful place, and it is a fascinating community and culture of ranchers who live in an incredibly remote place. And again, the telling of Shakespeare year after year and the children who go and see these plays who are like you on the edge of their seats, or in this case, like the edge of their picnic blankets. And then these kids have grown up to uh, with the actors and get to know the stories and get to know the actors who come back repeatedly. And it forms that sense of shared storytelling and experience on our land and with our families and with stories that mean a lot to all of us. And so I like to begin with Poker Jim Butte because every time people hear about that location and that story, they 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 want to hear they want to know more. So like the New York Times has done a story on it as has ABC and PBS. I mean, it's it's a thing that people can't help but talk about and want to partake in. And that's that's really the beauty of it, right? I mean, it's the same thing with me is as I'm sitting there reading about Poker Jim Butte and just just how remote of a place that is to put on a play. I'm sitting, I go on their website. I was like, when are they doing Poker Jim Butte? I'm going to drive out there and watch them. Um, but no, no, it's, it's yeah, the, the Shakespeare in the Park, but, you know, just like, like you said, the, the Poker Jim Butte example really, I think, draws home like, you know, how magnetic 
Shakespeare in quotations marks, right, is for, for folks here in Montana. And then I'm assuming, too, hopefully, too, all the surrounding states that they do go do performances in. And, and even for me, I remember I moved up here in, in the summer of 2018. And summer of 2019, I forget exactly how it was. I was driving somewhere by uh, Gibson Park in Great Falls. And I knew Shakespeare in a Park was a thing. And I look over, and there's a, a trailer with a small stage. And there's 100 people watching it. And I'm sitting there going, I'm like, I'll catch it next year. And then, of course, next year is 2020. So, so it's definitely on my to-do list, um, hopefully for next summer, uh, to go check out one of those performances, either here locally or, uh, well, maybe at Poker Gym B, but we'll see. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and as I said, it is the 50th year anniversary of the company, so it will be an especially celebratory year to, to see the shows. Okay, so let's, let's uh, start wrapping it up here. Um, so... You've already demonstrated it, but if but if you could as well, can you try to, to just explain or, or tell our readers how your book, uh, Shakespeare in Montana, helps us better understand the American West? I think that one thing I kept coming back to as I was putting this all together and stitching it together, as, as, as you mentioned early on, is to like, what story does all this Shakespeare encounter and, and schooling and reading groups and stages and gold rushes, like what story does this tell about, about our region and about the history of the American West? And what I kept coming back to is that Montana is an incredibly large state with an incredibly uh, big history, right? As big as our big skies. Uh, and Shakespeare is also the most expansive of authors. So because Shakespeare is so popular and so versatile and can really expand to mean what people need him to mean in different places and speak to people's needs and desires and, and fears and tragedies and traumas and all of that, I think that understanding Montana through the lens of Shakespeare helps us realize that the history of Montana is very large and a lot more diverse than I think a lot of people give it credit for, because it's not just a story of of mountain men and cowboys and and a, a bunch of white people running ac- across the state, right? It also is a story, as we've been talking about, the women's reading groups and the attempt to establish a certain uh, culture. Uh, and it's also the story of teachers in one-room schoolhouses or other larger schoolhouses figuring out the best way to impart uh, knowledge to their children. But it's also uh, a story of some marginalized communities that I do talk about in one of the interludes in particular when I, I have an interlude called From the Margins. And where I talk about the engagement of African-American communities uh, with uh, Shakespeare, I try to talk about the presence and also too often the silencing of Native American voices when it comes to encounters with Shakespeare. But whether we're talking about Native American communities or African-American communities or women or, or people who are economically marginalized, those stories are are very present in Montana's history too. And to see those communities and individuals engaging with Shakespeare on their own terms and saying, okay, if I'm going to, again, put on the costume of a reader or of an actor or of a speaker or of an activist, this is what Shakespeare means to me. 
I think that because Shakespeare is ever present in uh, in Montana, to look at the different ways that Montana residents have engaged with him is to listen to a different type of history, to listen to the soft voices as well as those booming loud bandman type voices. And I think that um, Shakespeare gives us that opportunity to not only look wide across the big sky, but to look in depth and uh, for the for the more textured, subtle ways that people can open a book or attend a theater and and have access to to a story that can mean different things to different people at all times. Yeah, I like how you put it that um, you can project upon Shakespeare whatever it is you're going through. You know, and I think that's and I think that's a, that's something that you you've you've hinted at or if not said explicitly throughout the book is that there's a Shakespeare out there for everybody. Um, and, and so, and I'll even say too, that after reading this book, I have a, I have a, I'm more likely to have a very long car ride drive ahead of me and I'm already trying to find, uh, plays on podcasts for me to listen to as I go across the States and go, how does Hamlet apply to a 10 hour drive to North Dakota? I'm sure there's something in there for me somewhere. Um, oh, more than you can imagine. <laughs> All right. So, so last question here. So what's next for you? What are you, uh, what are you working on right now, if anything? Oh, too many things. I'm, I'm always working on about five projects at once. Uh, one thing that haven't started working on explicitly as much as thinking about is um, there's a lot of theater in Montana from, from you know, the, t- the time of, of uh, Virginia City uh, on up through, through now and uh, Kevin and I have talked a little bit about getting together a book that's about theater in Montana, more broadly speaking, that's not just about Shakespeare. Uh, and then other things that I'm working on more insistently right now have to do with ways of adapting Shakespeare plays to speak to environmental crises uh, locally in Montana. And I, I did an adaptation like that a couple of years ago called uh, Time of Anaconda set in, in Butte uh, and talking about uh, uh, mining industry and, and environmental problems and applying it, you know, with a Shakespeare, uh, with a Shakespeare play in the background. And I'm working on a couple of other plays along those same lines, because I think that, again, using Shakespeare to speak to urgent uh, concerns uh, is a really important uh, way that we can think creatively and ethically and communally together. So that's that kind of work is really exciting me right now. Awesome, thank you for that. Uh, and we'll definitely keep your or I'll, I specifically keep my eyes peeled on your theater uh, projects. I, I got something like that cooking in my head too, and I'll, I'll tell you about that after I hit stop record. But well, Gretchen, thank you so much for your time. I do appreciate it. This was a fascinating discussion, and and hopefully. Um, this will get uh, folks to a buy your book because that's why we do these podcasts, <laughs> but also think a bit more about Shakespeare in their daily lives. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. All right, thanks. Goodbye, bye.